You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. You know, for for some time, Brian, the, the challenge has been talent management, talent retention, talent recruitment. It really has been. I mean, the the space that I work in, which is IT and cybersecurity, that is moving out at a rapid pace. And it is not easy to keep the skill sets needed to stay up with that. And so uh, that, that overarching problem won't go away for some time because of the great shortage of personnel that are trained to work in the space. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Amidst an obvious, complex, global geopolitical environment right now, the Defense Information Systems Agency, or DISA, has been working to progress how it provides communication and information technology as a U.S. Department of Defense combat support agency. The agency is consistently pulling in advanced and updated technologies to support the nation's leaders, warfighters, and U.S. combatant commands against near-peer adversaries. But as the agency continues this unequivocally tough mission, it will do so without its second-in-command, as Major General Garrett Yee will retire from the IT agency in active duty at the end of April. He's been DISA's deputy director since June of 2019, and he's leading an 8,000-person workforce of military and civilian staff working on global communications and IT systems. Prior to joining DISA, Yi worked in the Army's CIO G6 office before it split into two. While at the Pentagon, he oversaw network modernization and security issues for the Army. In this episode, I'm fortunate to have Major General Yi on the show to talk about his career a little bit, what he sees for the future of DISA, plus I'm sure we're going to get into a lot more. So let's jump right into the conversation. Sir, welcome to the show, and I really appreciate you joining us during what I know is such a busy transitional period for you right now. Glad to be here, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. So many of my listeners probably only know you as Major General Garrett Yee, a top leader at DISA, but what I am fascinated by is is what has really shaped you and inspired you and motivated you to get to this point. So let's start with family. I, I know you're a husband, you're a father to three kids. I'm sure most people would agree that being a parent is one of the big, biggest educations you can receive. I know it was for me. What has being a father taught you in terms of leading men and women and just gotten you to this point? I, I think many would agree that parenting is probably one of the most humbling experiences <laughs> that anyone could have. You, 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 know, uh, you, you think you know how to raise kids, or at least you think you're doing the right thing to raise your kids, and, uh, and, and they are a life of their own. And so um, at different points in our, our kids' lives, uh, you know, we've had lots of different experiences to learn and grow from and be proud of, but also be very humbled. Uh, but in the end, you know, Maria and I are very proud of our th- three children. We have uh, three adult children, two 
a boy and a girl. And so um, I would say, you know, humility is what <laughs> I take away from that. Well, I'm sure that's been helpful, especially, I mean, humility, I, I would think is not only a great attribute for a leader, but especially in the middle of the pandemic, when you're trying to to learn new things on the go. Um, I mean, I, I could argue that part of part of wanting to have this conversation with you is to get some tips on how to have three kids because I'm, I'm my wife's expecting one uh, coming up in May, so I'll, I'll be learning on the fly. But uh, I, obviously, family is important to you, and, and it has kind of, sh- like you said, hu- humility shapes you, and you learn a lot, and it kind of bring that into to what you're doing. Yeah. No, and congratulations, Brian. That's going to be um, a wonderful, wonderful experience. You know, in terms of maybe using, you know, um, family as an analogy to maybe the the workplace or or our teams or our organizations. You know, as as a parent of three children, you li- you love all your children, you love each of your children fully, right? And you don't want one to be better off than the other. You don't want to have one superstar and two that you know can't get through life. You want them all to be successful and you want them to get along. But you know with sibling rivalry there is a natural maybe competition for attention sometimes, right? Not unlike in the workplace or in our military formations where we have, you know, competition for individuals trying to move up the ranks and do their best, looking for recognition. And sometimes the competitive piece probably potentially gets the best of, of folks at times. And while competition is healthy, at the end of the day, as a leader, you want all your subordinates to be successful, right? You don't want one subordinate organization to do great and the others not look good. No, you want them all to look good. You want them all to succeed. And you want them to help each other. You want them to get along. But sometimes that's um, counter to the culture of some organizations where it's so competitive. So that's why I think sometimes the analogy of the family, you know, can, can maybe shed some light in trying to explain the importance of teamwork. It makes total sense. Um, while, we're, while we're talking about family... Uh, I, I do want to talk about kind of your upbringing, your, your mom and dad. I'm, I, I'll, I'll admit I am, I am a history, some would call it a history nerd, but I'll, I'll say history enthusiast. And, um, I know in your background, your, your father served in world war two. And I think you also talked about the fact that your, your mom at the time was, was also put into uh, a camp within the United States as well as they were segregating certain factions. But, um, You've spoken a lot about how the military service of not only your father, but but other members of your family really led you on the path that you're on. Would love to learn more kind of about how that really inspired you to to take on this military career um, and and to serve your country and also kind of your what that relationship and learning from your mom as well kind of led you to this point. Yeah, so I think you know what you know I, I sometimes say that, you know, from my father, I got inspiration. And from my mother, I got, you know, courage, grit, and determination or something to that effect, right? I love that. And and my father was a soldier, an army soldier for a few years during World War II. And he was always proud of that service. 
he didn't talk much about it, but you know, he was always just very proud of the fact that that he served in the army, right? And when I started looking through my family's history that served in the military, you know, I had a great uncle that served in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team in Europe. He had a Purple Heart. Had a great aunt that served in the army and she made it, she was in the army nurse corps. She made it to the rank of Colonel. She served in Vietnam. She got a bronze service star for that. I had an uncle that served in the Marines and another uncle that served in the army in Korea. And, and, and so I just found, you know, that I just had this rich history of family service to our nation. I don't think it's uncommon for, you know, um, maybe, males of that generation or that era to have served uh, not as many women. My aunt were very proud of her. And my dad was always, would always talk about that she was a full colonel. And so I think, you know, all of that just maybe, you know, sunk into my brain at a young age about wanting to serve and, and do my part. As you said, my mom a Japanese American was placed in an internment camp in Gila, Arizona during World War II. Uh, her and her family. And uh, uh, they were in good conditions. They were in the middle of the desert with barbed wire around them with machine guns pointed into the camp. You know, my mom would say, because they were told, you're here for your safety. And she would say, well, if, you know, we're here for our safety. Then why are the machine guns pointed into the camp, not away from the camp, right? And, and so kind of a strange... <clears throat> scenario where my parents, you know, during World War II, one's in a camp and one's in war, trying to serve our nation. Um, and, and, and so what my mom had to go through, what her family had to go through to, you know, endure and get past that really just says a lot for, for her. And she's still alive today. She's like 87 years old. Uh, she's still very busy uh, <laughs> getting around town. Um, my dad has since passed, but, you know, with those kinds of, you know, parents um, that, you know, you, you feel compelled to, you know, get up each day and do your part and, well, and make them proud. Right. I mean, I obviously uh, grateful for your service, but, but grateful for, for your fathers as well. And it, you mentioned that he didn't really talk much about um, about his time serving other than he, he was proud to serve. Were there things that you remember him talking about that really carried with you? To where you are today? Well, you know, you know, he didn't go into combat during World War II. He was headed for Japan, uh, and then uh, got redirected to somewhere else. Um, but um, what he did talk about, though, was the friendships that he made with a couple of folks. He ended up being a medic, um, and you know, the connection that he made while he served. And that person later on was part of his wedding. And we just, you know, that sense of, of camaraderie. Um, and and, and that, that I think is what kind of stuck with me uh, and, and why it was a good experience for him because he walked away with, you know, with some friends uh, that were very important to him that later on helped him in life. I've always said military service has the ability to change the trajectory of someone's life for the good. You know, um, my uncles, you know, they came out of the camp my, on my, my mom's side, out of the internment camp, and they were probably angry young men. 
they ended up joining the service and ended up, I believe, because of that, able to get past, you know, all that stuff, or at least helped get past a lot of that stuff from being placed into a, a camp. When you go into a camp, they take everything from you. They take away your dignity, right? And and military service, I think, helps to help them to get that back. That, no, I, I think that that's a really that's a really strong sentiment. I I can absolutely understand that. And we were we were at war in at that moment because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, obviously. And I think our generation also experienced um, a moment like that in the form of nine eleven. I know pretty much everyone you you talked to could tell you where they were when uh when one of the pr- planes hit the towers i know i i was a, a started started to age you in this in this moment i was a freshman in college but i i was at virginia military institute and i remember walking to the barbershop and and on the the television watching uh the second plane hit um so i i remember exactly where i was but i'm i'm really interested to know how did that moment impact you? Because I think it impacted us all in, in different ways. And you talk about moments in our life that really could could change a trajectory. That I think that was one of them for a lot of people. How did that impact you? Yeah, it changed for me. So <clears throat> I was in the Army Reserve at the time when that happened. And I was a major thinking, hey, I'm I'm done with this, man. You know, this is you know, trying to balance your civilian job and your military duties and raise a family. Uh, it was a lot. And I thought, well, you know, I'm done with this, you know. Um, time to hang it up. And then 9-11 happens, and I get activated uh, to serve. And um, I remembered why I joined in the first place. You know, I think sometimes we get caught up in the day-to-day work, the minutiae, and kind of get bogged down with stuff and, and we forget sometimes why we're here in the first place. And that's to serve our nation in, in my case. Right. And now I had meaning once again for why I put that uniform on and that did change for me as well, Brian. Have there, so obviously nine 11 is one that, that you can point back to. Have there been un, any other, significant moments over the course of your life that you can think back to that, that you also think change your trajectory. I think being in the, the army reserve and then ending up at, at DISA might not have been the path that you thought you were going to take. Maybe it was, uh, maybe it wasn't, but there had to be moments, right. That, that changed your path. Can you think back to any of those, um, that were significant? You know, I think sometimes, <clears throat> What may seem to be an arbitrary decision at the time or action at the time, you know, ends up being, you know, pivotal, I guess. Yeah. So, so in my case, you know, I'm getting activated and deployed and going back to my civilian job and getting deployed, getting deployed and going back to my civilian job. <clears throat> and in 2014-15, I'm a, you know, a bigger general, a one-star and, um, you know, my job deployed was to be the RCENT G6 and the Signal Command Commander in Kuwait. Um, large footprint. We had about 2,000 plus 
personnel across seven countries, pretty big responsibility. But um, it was supposed to be a fairly quiet assignment. We were, you know, drawing down forces, you know, out of Afghanistan way back then. You know, we had been out of Iraq for three years. And, you know, within a couple of months of hitting the ground, we're back in Iraq fighting the ISIS problem set. Not expected at all, right? Supposed to be a quiet one-year rotation. Um, It was everything except for quiet. And uh, midway through, or two-thirds way through that assignment, uh, Lieutenant General Farrell, Bob Farrell, he was the Army uh, Chief Information Officer in G6 at the time, he said to me, he said, uh, Garrett, I want you to come to the Pentagon, work for me, and run the Army's network modernization efforts. And I, in the back of my mind, thought, well, you know, that's, you know, that'll be interesting. Um, so I said, sure. What do, what do you say to a three-star when you're a one-star? You say, yes, sir. <laughs> so I said, yes, sir. And then 20 minutes, he came back. Uh, we were at this this meeting. 20 minutes later, he came back and said, okay, it's done. You're coming right after you redeploy. And at that moment, I thought, I better call Maria and tell her that I'm not coming home. <laughs> <laughs> now I had given her a heads up that following this assignment, you know, they're going to give me an assignment somewhere. Um, but uh, we weren't necessarily thinking to be a, you know, stay on active duty for the next you know, seven years. So I came on to active duty in 2014 for a one-year, you know, deployment to the Middle East. And it's now 2022. And eight years later, I'm finally finishing up that assignment, I guess, right? (laughs) Yeah. What what was your civilian job at the time? I worked in San Francisco in the insurance industry. I was an executive with uh, this firm that um, did a lot of data collection. Our customers were insurance companies, so we were all about the data. Okay. And so uh, maybe not quite as exciting as uh, doing stuff in the Middle East. It's in the financial services sector is where I was. So then you you, you went back to the Pentagon. What what pushed you in the direction of of DISA ultimately? <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I'm at the Pentagon for you know six months and then. We're thinking it's one year, and General Farrell goes, I want you for two years. And then at about two-year mark, he's changing out. He asked if I could stay for a third year to help the transition with General Crawford. And then General Crawford asked me to stay another year. So I'm there for four years in the Pentagon. <laughs> and finally, Vice Admiral Norton, the DISA director, asked me to come help her out over at DISA. I said, absolutely, ma'am. <laughs> so, and three years later, now we're finishing up. It's funny. I, I mean, w- the spirit of that question was really to to ask if there were significant moments, but you can see that almost every moment can kind of change where your where your direction is and, and where you land. So um, it, now you're at DISA, and and obviously, um, as I mentioned, you're you're retiring at the end of April, um, but but you've seen a fair amount over the past. I guess it was 2014 that that you started working at the Pentagon and, and now ending up at DISA. As you're closing out, in your opinion, what's What's the biggest challenge that we're really facing right now in this industry? And then kind of if you were to take a look kind of forward facing over the next five years, 10 years, what, how do you think that challenge could kind of evolve? You know, for, for some time, Brian, 
the, the challenge has been talent management, talent retention, talent recruitment. It really has been. I mean, the the space that I work in, which is IT and cybersecurity, um, that is that is moving out at a rapid pace, and it is not easy to keep the skill sets needed to stay up with that. It's a challenge not only for the federal government, it's a challenge across, you know, the private sector as well. And so um, that that overarching problem won't go away for some time because of the great shortage of personnel that are trained to work in the space. So without question, yeah, there's the competitive piece with our adversaries, absolutely. But in order to get after that, you need to have skilled workforce to be able to meet the challenge. Yeah. And I think I remember this was maybe a year or two ago, and and we know how much has changed in the past year or two. But um, I remember seeing a stat that globally, there were just north of 2 million, I think it was like 2.3 million cybersecurity roles that were open and vacant. Um, which kind of speaks to that shortage, but you, you kind of sit in a, in a unique place in that you obviously straddled for a little while, the private sector, um, and public sector in the, in the form of the army and, and now being in the army, but, but speaking to talent, I think one of the biggest narratives around talent is that it's difficult for government to compete with the private sector, whether it's salaries or, or whatever it is, any thoughts on, on ways that government might be able to compete, whether it is that that pull the public service or more hands-on. There, there's a lot of narratives out there. A- any thoughts around that? You know, there have been a, a couple of initiatives that have been somewhat productive in bringing talent into the federal government at large. In DOD specifically, um, you know, the services have done a couple of things where uh, experimented with bringing you know, um, civilian members into the military at higher grades based upon experience and education. Uh, that's has had, you know, a little bit of traction there. Um, there's been um, given direct hiring authorities to broader categories of workforce members in the federal government and DOD. That's been somewhat helpful. Um, there have been you know, incentives, financial incentives uh, that I think has been somewhat helpful. Uh, but I think the area that, you know, warrants, you know, the the focus of our attention is more on the internship and pathway type programs where you bring people in, you know, earlier in the careers, in college, right after college, and get them into you know, a program where they step through up to a certain grade if they make satisfactory progress and let them see the goodness of what they can do in the federal government. Um, you know, the, the, the federal government and DOD as a subset has just a lot of great opportunities to do things that you can't do anywhere else. And so that I think speaks to a certain part of the population that's interested in not just making money, but doing something that's worthwhile. And, and so, you know, targeting, you know, those kinds of programs, I think, you know, will have, you know, 
you know, benefit to, you know, the workforce over time. It's funny. I mean, every, every government leader, whether it be uh, federal civilian or the DOD that's, that's come on has really driven home the value of public service and really talked about how much they have, have loved their public service and really think that, I mean, really calling for people to, to come and serve because they feel like they've gotten so much out of it. So that's been a consistent pattern. I think another consistent pattern that we've seen um, across government in, in some areas, maybe not the DOD always, but um, is is a lack of budget to to hit their their mission objectives. So as you're as you're leaving DISA, um, if if you had a budget, let's say 10x the size of what you have now. How would you prioritize that? Would part of that be on talent? Would all of that be on talent? Would you be looking somewhere else? You know, so there's <clears throat> there's a there's um, a technology component that has to stay current, but you need skilled workforce to be able to maintain and manage that technology. So you got to sure. balance between those two levers between you know the personnel and the technology, and so. They, they both need, you know, funds. But if you had 10X, maybe you wouldn't have as much of a problem today. <laughs> how, how have you navigated that? I mean, it's difficult, no matter what industry you're in, right, to keep up with technology, even if you have the budget, um, because you you said it exactly, it's, it's a skill set, right? You can spend all the money you want on, let's say, artificial intelligence within, within DOD, but if you don't have the skill set to be able to manage and, and leverage that technology and that value, then really you're, you're not going to get the outcomes that, that you want by procuring it. So how have you kind of straddled that or managed that? Well, you, you know, I think what you do is you look at it holistically. You don't look at it as one or the other. You look at it as a combined problem set. And so that if you know you need to modernize or, or continue to modernize, that means you need to continue to train and ensure that you have the workforce to be able to manage the modernization of the technology. Yeah, I guess it, I guess it kind of brings in the, the more militaristic to aspect of continuously training, continuously being ready, and you're continuously upgrading. And I think sometimes in the business world, that's forgotten. You get so focused on kind of your day-to-day that you forget about trying to get 1% better every day in, in other areas. Um, so I think that that could be an ethic that maybe the business world hasn't, hasn't really fully adopted, I think maybe in pockets, but, um, but that the military could really teach, uh, in that operational setting. Yeah. The military for the uniform members in particular invests a tremendous amount in training. I mean, they send you away for a year to the war college to get a master's degree. They send, you know, in the Navy folks or the Naval Postgraduate School for two years to get a master's degree. It's, I mean, if you look at any service member's military training, it's got years of training in there, cumulatively. Yeah, they, yeah, military invests a lot in training. So, so as you are stepping away, um, I'm curious, as you look back at your time in the Army, I know you you actually commissioned in, in the late 80s in, in the reserves, and you've been on active duty for for coming up on a decade now. But across that period of time, what are some of those moments that you're most proud of? Yeah, easily, it's, you know, 
the opportunity to help others become successful. You know, as, as a leader, you're always proud when you hear or see someone's name come out on a promotion list that you served with previously. And that is by far for me, you know, what I'm most proud of is, is the connections, the people that I've met along the way and their, and their successes. Not that I had much to do with their successes, but, but because you know them and saw them and knew that they were good people, when you see that they succeed and move on, you can't help but to be proud for them. It kind of brings it full circle. Like you said at the very beginning, you you love your all your kids and you want all of them to be successful. And you're so invested in the relationships that, that, that you make over the course of your career that they all, they, I don't want to, I almost don't want to belittle it. It's not that they almost become family, they become family and you see them become successful and when you when you do that, just like your your kids become successful, I, I can see that being being a, a proud moment. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, in a couple of months, I take this uniform off. You know, and and what I'm most proud of is not being a two star general. No, my, what I'm proud of is that I got to serve with a lot of great Americans. That's what I'm proud of. So, I'm interested too because there's always I think misconceptions of somebody's role, um, on, on their day to day, what they're doing. If you had any advice to the industry, what would, what would some of, what would some of those, those points be? And, and also kind of in the same vein, what do you wish people understood perhaps about your job? Maybe some of the things that, that when you, when you wake up and put that uniform on every day and you're serving our country in the form of of being deputy director of, of DISA, what do you wish people understood better about that role and how that impacts the overall scheme of things? Well, I guess what I hope people understand about my role is that I'm here to help you be successful as a mission partner, right? You know, I'm the external facing executive for, for the agency at my level. And you know, what I want those that I work with, serve with, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, Space Force, the COCOMs, the defense agencies, I want them to know that my job is to help them be successful with the capabilities that we provide. And that's what I hope that they take away in that. If they have an issue, hey, just pick up the phone and call or send me a note, which they do. But that's what I hope that. They, they appreciate. In terms of advice to industry, it's really hard for me to give me advice to that, you know, for me to give advice to them without being in their shoes. Um, but with that said, you know, um, what I want industry to know is that, you know, we can't do this mission without the teamwork of our industry partners. It's kind of a strange dynamic the way we do this with contracting and competitive bidding to be able to support and serve our nation. Um, my job you know, in, at this is to understand the requirements of our mission partners, which is, as I said, Army Air Force, Space Force, Marine Corps, Navy, and, and in turn, find a way to get them that support. And much, much of the time, most of the time, that support to 
the mission partner ends up being an industry partner doing the work at the end of the day. So, you know, we are all in this together. And I think they know that. I'm pretty sure they know that. You touched on some constraints there actually around procurement. I, I don't think anybody listening would argue that the procurement process isn't, isn't easy, right? Um, understanding that, that there's process for a reason, but um, is, is there anything you would change, especially being, being on your side, the pandemic's a great example where some of this technology has had to get into the hands of people at a faster rate. Is, is there anything that, that you wish was different right now so you could actuate on that mission faster? Well, so one of the things that comes up quite often is, you know, the contract protest, which then can really delay the delivery of a capability. And there are very legitimate reasons why, you know, um, we have the protest opportunity. Uh, but um, it does end up at times, you know, feeling like there's a lot of them out there. And so that does hinder getting started on, you know, a contract. And, and sometimes we lose time, a significant amount of time as a result of that. Yeah, I, I can, I can definitely see that being frustrating when your, your thought process is on mission outcomes and you're having to deal with the administrative burden of a protest from a, from a vendor. So, um, at, as we're starting to wrap up, I'm going to ask you a question that that I'm I'm well aware you might not be an answer, but but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, you said you're you're taking your uniform off. Obviously, uh, end of April, you won't be a, a two star general any longer. So what's what's next for you? Well, we'll take some time off for sure. We'll take well deserved. <laughs> My daughter's getting married in July. Oh, excellent! So, Congratulations. Thank you. So that's going to take a lot of energy. <laughs> <laughs> Emotional um, and physical. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and, you know, and, and our daughter, Alyssa, you know, is a very, a very nice young man. And so uh, we focus on that. Our other son, Michael, I mean, our son, our, our younger son, Michael, he is already married. We have a granddaughter. He's already married to a very nice young lady, Connie. So we'll get a chance to spend a little more time with the, the granddaughter uh, for a couple of months. We'll take some time off and then I'll get a job. I'll do something. I want to stay involved. I want to stay in the fight, still helping to support the mission in one way or another. I love it. Um, so, so as we wrap up, um, we've covered a lot. Um, let me, let me reiterate again. Um, thank you again for your service. I incredibly grateful. Um, you, you've, you've done a lot to serve this country in both the, the forward operating theaters, as well as on, on the, the technology side of things. But as you're, as you're leaving this role and transitioning, do you have any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners today? You know, I would just say that being able to serve in really 35 years this June has really been, you know, the privilege of, of the privilege of a lifetime to be able to do that. And I get it that it is a lifetime, 35 years total service, reserve and active duty, um, but it's gone by so fast. It's gone so fast, and I feel, you know, so lucky to be able to do this for as long as I have, and and feel like I was able to do my part. So, I'll close with that. Thank you again for the time today. I really appreciate it. 
Well, thank you, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to govexec.com backslash podcast or wherever you access your podcast. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Shittest Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.